Hello everyone and welcome to From the Archives. This podcast goes back to many sermons preached over many years. We thought we'd bring them from the past here into the present so you can enjoy some of the messages that came before. Take a listen to what we have tonight. Okay, we are back at it again. Apologetics defending the faith. Told you I had a good one for you tonight. This Sunday, I came over to get my, to get my lunch, and I, a guy was visiting the church. I, I had never met him before. He's been here before, but I'd never met him before. He said, can I ask you a question, Pastor? I said, sure, ask me a question. He says, aren't all gods the same? I mean, don't we just call all of these different gods by different names, but it's really the same God? And I looked at him, and a, a dozen smart comments ran through my brain. And I said, wait a second, this guy really may not know what he's asking. I said, no, they're not the same. So today, question number nine, real simple. Don't all religions believe in the same God, but call him by many names? If you have dealt in the secular world for any length of time, you have had this question asked. Isn't Allah and God and Yahweh and the Brahma and the Vishnu and the Buddha, aren't they all the same person? Just a different name? Isn't it all language? Here's the answer I'll give you in short. No, not the same person. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at the word tonight. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. This is where we were last week. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. <coughs> tonight I'm going to focus on the central issue which is different between Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Krishna and all the other nas in the world. But first I want to lay down one important foundation. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. We had this last week, so maybe you've got it marked in your Bible. Here it is. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. And as you know, the rest of that verse goes how? And I do all things according to my good pleasure. What does this tell us about the God of the Bible that is different than all these other gods? Now at this point, at this point, we and the Jews are dead even. The God of Christianity is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Yahweh of Israel. He is the God of the Old Testament. That has not changed. Everything begins with Adam, goes through Noah, comes down through Abraham, and we don't get into trouble till we get past this point. But take a look at this. Why was this so important for Isaiah to say in his day? Simple. All pagan religions of the past had a pantheon of deities. Look at the Romans, look at the Greeks. They had a god of war, a god of the ocean, a god of volcano. They had a god of fertility. They had a god of beauty, a god of hunting. They had gods for everything. If they were around today, we'd have a god for Fords, we'd have a god for GM, and a god for Kias. Seriously, that's how many gods they had. I went to Thailand sometime back, and there's literally a god on every corner. In every field, next to every building, there's a god. And they all look a little bit different, but they all have a specific purpose in that particular location. 
pagan religions had many, many gods. Oftentimes, if you study the Greek gods, if you read that book in high school mythology, that lady wrote, I think his name was Margaret Hamilton. She uh, wrote this book on mythology, and she talked about the wars of the gods. And Zeus is the big, you know, big kahuna god, and he's doing all this stuff. But his old lady's always getting in the way. His old lady's always jacking with him, always messing with him, never lets him get anything done. And then this goddess is fighting that goddess and started the, the Trojan War because two goddesses got out of joint about stuff. And it's interesting because God says, there is no other, there is none like me. I am it. We have one God. There's not even demigods under him. There's no Herculeses. There's no Prometheuses. There's nothing but our God. And also, too, God says, all things I do according to my good pleasure. Nobody interrupts God in what he's doing. Not even his creation. That's us. Now think about this. The Mormons say that there was a council of gods and that the God of the earth, the heavenly father or Elohim, he went to this council of gods and decided how he was going to make the earth and how he was going to populate it. Now does that square with Isaiah 46, 9 and 10? No. So if the Mormon description of gods doesn't match the Bible, who's wrong? The Mormons. Let's move on. Hinduism has many branches. Among its branches are those that have a pantheon of up to 1,000 gods. You've got Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Those are the three principal Trinitarian type of gods, but they're all very separate, different personalities, and they don't always work together very well. They don't play nicely. So in Hinduism, you do not have one god who is God alone. You have one among many gods. Very similar to the Mormons. So if we put the Bhagavad Gita next to the Bible, and the Bhagavad Gita doesn't agree with the Bible, that's the Hindu scriptures, who's wrong? The Christians or the Hindus? The Hindus. So let's move on from there. Next scripture. 1 John 4.10. Now I want to get into the area which is distinctive between Christianity and every other religion, including Judaism. 1 John 4.10. Now, when your friends, or when I dealt with this, this particular gentleman, I, I took him basically through kind of this reasoning. I said, here's the thing. All gods can't be real gods because all gods are so different. They're different in their purpose and in their intention and in their personality and in the way they deal. So if one is right, the others have to be wrong. They cannot all be the same God. Otherwise, God's a schizo and we're in big trouble if God is schizo. Okay, 1 John 4.10. You don't have your Bible. I wrote it for you. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My daughter's memorizing this verse for school right now. And she's, she's doing 1 John 4, 7 through 11. With her mother's help, she's getting this thing down. She read this yesterday and went, ooh, that's the key verse for my sermon. So I think my daughter told her I was going to give her credit for this. Anyways, here it is. He is the propitiation for our sins. Meaning what? We owed a debt to God because we have violated his law. Now, in every other religion, they have some way to even the scales. Some way to pay back God for the wrong things that we've done to him. But in Christianity, as in Judaism, it doesn't work to just do a little good deed here, a little good deed there. There has to be something that redeems back the person who was sold into this sin. So here it is. 
the Mormon Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover the vast majority of sins committed upon the earth. However, there are those sins such as blasphemy against the prophet Joseph Smith, which the blood of Jesus Christ cannot atone for. Therefore, there must be a shedding of the person's blood that their soul may be saved from eternal loss. So because they like you and you've sinned a big sin, they split your throat open, spill your blood, and your blood washes away your sin. Hmm. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sin. Does that sound like we have to do some splitting of our own throats, spilling of our own blood? I don't think so. I think the Mormons missed that one. Let's look at Islam. Anybody here a jihadist? Because if you're going to blow up my house, I, I, I moved to his house. So just in case. Just in case. Not that I'm giving you love, man, but you know. Here it is. Islam says this. Jesus Christ was a prophet in a line of prophets, but he was the prophet to his people in his day. He preceded the great prophet, but was superseded by him. Now we'll get to that cat in a moment. Jesus did not atone for the sins of people. He did not die on a cross. There are two beliefs that are split throughout the Islamic world. The first core belief is that in the moment that Jesus was nailed to the cross, the body of Judas Iscariot was substituted and they actually crucified Judas Iscariot on the cross. So Judas died for your sins. Or at the last moment, as they were about to nail him to the cross, his body was miraculously transcended or translated into heaven away from the hands of the Romans and the Jews. So actually they said they crucified him, but actually he was never actually there. Now, as I remember my scripture, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, right? Abraham takes his kid up on the mount, on Mount Moriah. He's going to peg Junior because God said, kill your son to show me he's not more important than me. At that moment, Junior's got the sticks on his back and goes, Dad, where's the sacrifice? What does Abe say? He says, you don't worry, son. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Everyone thinks that's just a weird choice of words. It's not. It's prophetic. God did provide the only sacrifice acceptable. But Islam cannot accept that Jesus died on a cross because they do accept the Old Testament, which says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. So if Jesus was cursed, he can't be a pure, sinless prophet of God. Obviously, Islam got this wrong because they don't believe the blood of Jesus can save us either. So them and the Mormons are rowing the same boat. Let's take a look at Hindus. Hindus, maybe they got it right, you know? Okay. Hindus said, the soul is eternal and accountable for its own sin. No one can make restitution for the sin of a man save the man himself. Think about this. If you are a Hindu, whatever you commit, you pay for. And only you can make it right. Now, how do they make it right? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But obviously, the Hindus have missed the point too. Because they don't believe the blood of Jesus can do anything for you either. So let's look. If the God of Christianity is just another name for the gods of all these other religions, wouldn't God have one way to take care of all of our problems? Yes. Otherwise, God would be schizo. And since God is not a schizo, somebody's right. Bible. 
someone's wrong. Everybody else. Let's press on. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know this verse, right? Very simple verse. This flows down from the idea that was in 1 John 4.10. God sent his son to be a propitiation. Remember? Jesus wasn't good enough according to the other religions. Let's see what they say about John 3.16. Well, real simple. Islam says this. Jesus is not the son of God because Allah has no children. Well, that's good. If Jesus was not the son of God, then he was a huge liar and greatly deceived and a lunatic to boot. So I think the Islamists just got it wrong. Hey, the hairy Krishnas, maybe those guys with their fancy hairdos and their brightly colored clothes, maybe they've got a clue. I looked up the hairy Krishnas. Guess what? They like Jesus too, but he's not the son of God either because the Lord Krishna, which is their ultimate deity in the pantheon thing, he don't got no kids either. Jesus was a good guy, but he was not the son of God. Now hang on a second. John 3, 16, for God so little, he gave his only begotten son. This messes everybody up. These words in the Greek are very simple. His unique son. There is something about Jesus that is unique only to Jesus and not to anybody else. Because you can say, oh, we're all sons of God, right? We're all the sons of God. Really, we are? Let's take a look at this again. Gave his only begotten son. Ah, maybe if they don't believe it, maybe the uh, Mormons will. Let's see what the Mormons say. Ah, Jesus is a son of one of the gods and his brother is Lucifer. Hmm, Jesus, Lucifer, brothers, all sons of God, as we're all direct emanations of the uh, sexual promiscuity of the eternal being that inhabits this world. Think about this. Is this his only begotten son? I don't think so. It's not like the Mormons have missed the boat here too. Let's look at Islam. What do you think Islam says about Jesus? Ha <laughs> ha Jesus was a prophet, but he was not the final prophet. Who was the final prophet? There is only... Oh, Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his prophet. Right. Do you know what the name Muhammad means? The one who is praised. The name Muhammad means the one who is praised. So if Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, if he is the one to be praised, then it should be that for God so loved the world that he gave his Muhammad, that whosoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Well, there's a problem with that. Somebody asked Muhammad, how could they know if they were going to go to see Allah when they died? He said, I don't know if I'm going, so I can't tell you if you're going. So obviously, he's not this only begotten son of God who can promise you that you won't perish. Okay, maybe the Hindus have got this idea down. Now here's the thing, what do all these things come down to? But have everlasting life. Go back to our friends, the Hindus. What do the Hindus say? The Hindus believe in samsara. You know what samsara is? You all know it. It's reincarnation. Reincarnation is a wheel of life. Samsara means if you screw up in this one, you got to go around again. You can start as a cockroach, work your way up to a bunny rabbit, get on up there to a grizzly bear, then you make the big leap. You become a woman. Oh, Guys, you know what your last life? Just checking. Okay, after you're a woman, if you do it really good, you get to be a man. Amen. Here's the problem. From the top, if you screw up, you go back to being a woman. 
then you go back to the dog, then you go back to the cockroach, then you're an amoeba. You can go down the wheel as well as go up the wheel. The whole thing is when you get to the top of the wheel, you get off into we don't know what. We don't know what's on the other side of getting off the wheel. But your thing is to get off the wheel. Not to have everlasting life, but to get to the end of the whole journey. See, reincarnation is not a blessing, it's a curse. Samsara says, you screwed up, so you got to do it again and again. It's kind of like in the military. If they teach you how to walk and you don't walk right, they make you do it again and again and again until you get it right, right? You make a man do it so many times, he can do it in his sleep. You guys got out of the military, you could break your weapon down and put it back together again with a blindfold on, right? Just sniff the parts and there it goes. You're good to go. Because you do it again and again. That's what samsara is. It's not everlasting life. It's eternal, boring repetition. Man to woman to dog to woman to back to man, maybe another man, then get off the wheel. That doesn't sound a whole lot like the God of the Bible either. Let's check out a couple more things. 1 John 4.11. See, I saw something interesting. In 1 John 4.10, it says, This is love. Not that we loved him, but he loved us, right? God loved us. Then in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now here's the interesting thing. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now here's where all the world's religions kind of start to merge again. Everybody has got this thing of we need to love each other, right? Universal love and peace and harmony and convergences and all that good stuff. And if you look throughout the descriptions of the world's religions, and I, I just spent the last, the last, I don't know how long, going through the Kingdom of the Cults, great book by Walter Martin, Kingdom of the Cults, describes the beliefs of the different churches throughout the world, and all of them talk about love and generosity and mercy and grace and all these things. But... Every single religion makes these love issues about earning your salvation. What do you notice in 1 John 4.11 that is not like that? Beloved, if God so loved us, what? We also ought to love one another. Love is a response to his love. Love is not a way to earn his love. We don't love other people and do loving things to earn the love of God. We love other people because we've already been loved by God. You see the difference? That's how world religions are so different. They do it to earn the respect of their deity. Our God has already loved us, shed his blood to redeem us, and now that he's redeemed us and calls us his own, we love in response to having been loved. I mean, you take a dog and you love on a dog and play with his head and fluff his ears, and man, he's going to love you and protect you, and he's going to bite the mailman and all that good stuff. But you take a, you take a stick, hit a dog enough times, that dog's going to wait till you're sleeping. He's going to take you out. You beat that dog enough, he's going to come back and bite you. It's the truth. That's how it is here. We love in response to the love we've already been given. I see a huge difference in this and in the religions of the world. Titus 3, 5, let's press on. Titus 3, 5. Now remember what I said. They love as part of their works, part of their way of earning salvation. Let's see what the Bible says about our salvation. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, such as love, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Whoa. 
Huge, huge issue. Salvation. What does salvation look like for all these many world religions? We see it right here. It's because God chooses us, because he loves us, he makes salvation available to us. Let's see. There's two other areas you have to look at. The first is um, Islam and Hindus. Hindus have the idea of karma. You know what karma is, right? Karma's a really nasty woman and she comes back to get you. Yeah, that's karma. Karma is a debt owed for a negative or hurtful action. That's how the Hindus define karma. Karma is a debt for bad actions. Remember we say when you do something to somebody, karma's gonna come back? It means a return of that bad on you. What it actually means is karma is you're on this wheel of life thing, right? You're, you're running it like a little hamster. And as you do bad things, you know, your, your karmic debt is huge. The bigger your debt to karma, the further back down the wheel you go. You might be a guy and you may hit by a bus and you wake up a paramecium in a dish somewhere being, you know, injected with diseases and stuff. That's the karmic debt. What you owe karma, karma extracts back from you. Now, does that sound like Titus 3.5? I don't think so. Ah, uh -huh. Islam has another one. It's called kismet. How many of you guys know what kismet is? If you're my age or older, you probably have heard a song called kismet. It's kismet. Kismet is fate. Kismet is not something that you can change. It's what is going to happen to you, whether you want it to happen to you or not. The Vikings had an idea. The Vikings believed that your life was a string and it was spun on a spinning wheel. And as your life went down the spinning wheel, the fates would wait. And when you got to the right place, snip, they would cut your lifeline. So when they would go into battle, the Vikings would say, you can hide on the ship. You can hide in the woods. But if it's your day to die, death will find you. If you don't go to death, death will come to you. Now Hollywood has made a lot of money out of making movies like this, of death hunting people down. Final Destination, Final Destination 2, Final Destination 3. You know those movies? Some guys are on a plane and plane crashes, everybody dies except a couple people. It's because fate missed them and then it comes looking for them. I never actually watched it. I was intrigued by the, by the, the little, little clip that heads up other, other movies. And I went, this is ridiculous. But this is kismet, it's fate. You see, in the Hare Krishnas, they believe that you have to repay karma on that wheel. So you see, there is no mercy. There is no uh, salvation by grace. It's all works of righteousness. Titus says, not by works of righteousness, but the Hare Krishnas say it's works of righteousness that repay karma and get you back up the wheel so you can fly off into, you know, never, never land. Islam believes there's only two ways to get to heaven. The first is kismet. The second is works. There's the five pillars of the Islamic faith. Five things they have to do. One of them is they have to make a journey to Mecca. Now there used to be six things in the pillars to heaven. The sixth was jihad, holy war. Holy War guarantees you pop right out of death, right into heaven with your 70 virgins. Okay? That's the sixth pillar. But not all Islamists will accept that. But the other one is fate. Even if you do everything right, kismet can decree that you not make heaven. That's why Muhammad said, I can't tell you if you'll go to meet Allah. I don't know if I will go to meet Allah. If the prophet of God don't know that he's going to go see God, that's messed up. But like Moses going, yeah, I think this is the way we're going, but I'm not sure. 
Yeah, God told me to go here, but I don't know if this is the right direction. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But that's what Islam believes. Kismet, or fate, and works. Now the Hindus say this, if you do good deeds, you can balance the rest of karma out, and you might get off the wheel. So it's, it's, it's sort of the good works, evil works thing. Isn't that what most Americans believe? Now think about this. Even most people in our churches believe and act like Hindus. I've done more good than wrong. I never hurt anybody. I had a guy tell me once, well, I never hurt anybody bad. I cheated, I lied, I stole, but I never really killed anybody. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're a good Hindu. More good than bad, you know? And that's what they believe. But that doesn't fit Titus 3.5. And then, of course, Mormons believe that uh, only good works can get you from the lowest heaven to the middle heaven to the highest heaven. And to get into the highest level, the highest heaven, you have to go through all the investments and all the temple procedures and all those rituals and temple marriage and baptism for the dead and all that nonsense. Now think about this. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That flies in the face of every religion on the face of the earth. Everything. Unfortunately, it flies in the face of Judaism too. Jews are still trying to earn their way to heaven by being the son or daughter of Abraham. That don't work anymore because once the Messiah came, the rest of it went out the door. Jesus paid the debt. There's no more sacrifices acceptable because the temple burned the ground in 70 AD. It's been a long time since then. Let's keep going. Let's keep fixing. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, here's the dividing line for every religion on the face of the earth. If you have got a brain like mine and you can only remember a verse, this is the verse you remember. Here's the thing. Jesus is either right on or he's right off the charts. He's either absolutely the Son of God, the propitiation for our sin, the one way to heaven, or every way to heaven is the same. Because look at this. This is amazing. John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Islam, the word Islam means submission. The word Muslim means the one who submits. So when someone says, I am a Muslim, it means I am one who submits to what? To the law of Allah as taught by the prophet Muhammad. So they are in submission to a man who says he received a revelation from God. That's interesting. If you believe the revelation and you believe the one who received it. But... It's a little problem with that sometimes. Now let's take a look at this. Okay, so Islam thinks, okay, we've got the truth, right? We have, we have Muhammad's thing. But Muhammad says, I don't know how to get there. I don't know if we can. Kismet is the wild gun. So if Jesus says he's the only way, can Muhammad truly be a prophet of God? No. Can anything Muhammad say be true? No. On top of that, they don't even believe Muhammad because Islam has this thing called the Hadith. The Hadith is the collected traditions. The Hadith holds the same place as the Quran. Quran Hadith. Just like among, among the Jewish people, you've got the Old Testament, but some people only hold to the first five books of Moses. They only hold to the law. And some hold to the interpretations of the law and is interpreted by rabbis who came along later. So whenever you start adding books, it messes everything up because you don't have one single authority to go to. The Mormons do the same thing. The Mormons say what? 
we believe in the King James Bible as correctly translated and, of course, the book of all perfection. I brought it with me. Da-da-da! The Book of Mormon with the Doctrine and Covenant. Hey, and the Pearl of Great Price. Yet, you look in the hand of most Mormons and what do you see? Do you see the King James Bible? Or do you see this little bad boy that has all three in one? Good choice. They pick this one right here every time. Because this is the one that tells them everything they want. Here you go. This is why they love this. Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 22. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. That's why they like it. I know why Joseph Smith loved the Doctrine and Covenants. If you get over here to 132, God writes a letter to Joseph Smith's first wife. Doctrine and Covenants 132. And he says, yes, it is adultery for a woman to sleep with another man other than her husband. However, if a man is given a gift by me, as many as he should receive from me, this shall be holy. 132. That's why men want to be Mormons. In fact, if you go through here, you can't become a god until you can tolerate all the wives. As far as we can tell, Joseph Smith had in excess of 20 wives. How the man had time to write books, I don't know. Seriously. But the whole thing is this. Nothing in here matches anything that we've seen. If someone says to you, isn't the God of the Christians the same God as the God of Islam and the God of Hinduism and Buddhism and Mormonism, you go, let's take a look at it. What are your texts? Take their Bibles, take their Koran, take their Book of Mormon, put it right next to the Word of God and see where they fall deficient. And in every single instance, you will see that religion, which is man-made, is about what men can do to recommend themselves to God. Mormonism is perfect. It allows a man to become God. There's Satan's promise in the Garden of Eden. Go ahead, eat this pomegranate, and you will be as God, knowing good and evil. Yeah, and you'll know how evil you are, but he kind of left that part off. You see, when we do talk to people who are other religions, oh, this guy, this guy goes to this church now. And he honestly doesn't see the difference between Jesus Christ and Mohammed and Vishnu and Joseph Smith. If you can't see that difference, it's because you ain't reading the Bible or you just don't want to see it. Let's cap this thing up. One, the true God of heaven is one, not one of many. There goes the Mormons. There goes the Hindus. Got to throw those bad boys out. Okay, so Islam is still hanging in there because they only got one guy. But his will cannot be defeated because he is the one with, he's the only one with power. Okay, that kind of throws out some of the other ones. That throws out the religions that have multiple gods that are warring with each other and fighting for control of the human race. So that kind of throws them out. Look at the third one. Love is the result of salvation, not the way to become saved or not the way to salvation. There throws out almost every religion on the face of the earth. Every religion from Hinduism to Islam, etc., uses love and kindness and graciousness as a way of endearing ourselves to that deity. 
Yet only in the Bible, only in the Word of God do you see that our love for others is in response to the love that God initiates before anything else happens. God begins the process. We simply live in light of what he's already done. Last one. God has provided all that man needs to find salvation. Without Christ, there is no hope of eternal life. And that's it right there. That's where the discussion stops. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope of salvation. John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father. And go back to our section in Isaiah. If there is only one God and there is none like me. And I am God and there is none beside me. Okay, if that's who that God is, then there's only one way to him and that's through Jesus Christ. Amen. So Allah doesn't, Allah doesn't work. Muhammad doesn't work. Hinduism, Vishnu, all that stuff fails because it doesn't match up. Heck, if you compare them to each other, they don't match each other either. They all have a different interpretation of who God is, what God expects. They cannot all be right. So somebody's got to be wrong, which is all of them and not us. Amen. Thank you for joining us today in the archives. I am your host, Richard Stidham. Remember that we are a listener-supported ministry here, and if you would like to contribute in any way to keeping this message on the air, you can send any gifts to Richard Stidham, 1321 Baytown, Texas, 77521. That's P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas, 77521. God bless and we'll see you again in the archives.